Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, rolling out dental care. Oral health is health. Ottawa unveils its plan to expand subsidized dental care to more Canadians, but is it money well spent when millions are still waiting for a primary care physician? We'll speak with the Minister of Health, Mark Holland, and... Bad things have happened and continue to happen in Canadian sport. Launching an independent commission, we'll speak with Minister Carla Qualtrough about her plan to address abuse in sports. Plus, phasing out fossil fuels, Canada is on board, but what's the danger if those words are not included in the COP28 agreement? We'll speak with former Environment Minister Catherine McKenna. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The federal government unveiled its next steps to expand public dental care in this country. Beginning with seniors this month and into the new year, children under the age of 18 by June, and everyone else by the start of 2025. Now, there are guidelines as to who will qualify, but the government estimates upwards of 9 million Canadians will benefit. I was talking with a group of seniors who said to me, Mark, this isn't really going to happen. I've had the same dentures for decades, literally. And I don't have the money to replace them. And when I said, no, this is real, it's going to happen. One of the most powerful moments for me politically, you know, in my political life, to see that look of optimism and joy and what that dignity would mean, the dignity of being able to get those dentures replaced. Well, of course, that was Mark Holland, the Federal Minister of Health, and Mr. Holland joins us right now. Minister, thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Listen, your government has earmarked billions of dollars to make this dental care program possible, at $13 billion across five years. Is that money a good investment for this country? And by that, I'm kind of wondering what the cost-benefit analysis is here when you talk about dental care versus perhaps just putting that money into health care in general. No, you bet it is. Uh, oral health is health. And I, you know, one of the things that is so remarkable to me as I go around uh, is how important a healthy smile is to folks. Uh, it's not just important as a sense of dignity um, and, a, and a sense of confidence as you uh, work, you know, go into your job or, you, uh, or you're meeting your life, uh, but also, and I think this is so important as a, as a tool of prevention. You know, when I talk to healthcare professionals, um, who are seeing uh, folks in hospitals and emergency rooms who have to wait until their, their oral health problems become so terrible that they have to go in for surgery. Uh, the cost of that, the cost of that on a society and the cost literally in terms of the cost to our healthcare system is totally unacceptable. And we also know that having poor dental health can lead to cardiovascular disease, can lead to diabetes, it can lead to a myriad of other illnesses. You know, I, I talked about, you know, meeting seniors and some of them, you know, all too many of them have had the same dentures for decades uh, and, you know, don't have the dignity of being able to 
to, to scrounge the money together to get that those new dentures into their mouth. So there's also just a fundamental issue of social justice here. I think this is going to be really transformational uh, for our health system. Okay, transformational. But there are right now other programs. Uh, federally, there's the uh, non-insured health benefits program. Provincially, there are also targeted programs. How will this national dental care really be different from what those provide? Well, the idea here is to fill in the gaps. Uh, we're going after those folks who don't have coverage today. So we know that there's about a quarter of Canadians uh, who don't have said that uh, financial barriers means they're not getting access to oral health. So what we want to do is not displace what's there, but rather go after those folks who don't have service so that everybody has access to a healthy, happy smile. And as I say, that that is not only going to be so important for how they inhabit the world and go into their work and spend time with their families and friends, but it's going to be so essential as well from a perspective of prevention. And so it's, uh, this, this plan is really going to work with the provincial and territorial plans, work with the other plans that are out there from other insurers to complement it, to fill in those gaps, to make sure that everybody has access to, to uh, or good oral health care. Okay, you say work with, but I wonder if this program will, at the end of the day, uh, for example, encourage provinces to divest from their own programs. No, you know, I, I'm having a lot of really great conversations with my provincial and territorial counterparts. And, uh, you know, when we were in Charlottetown, as an example, for the health minister's meeting, talking about how we can work together to uh, improve health of Canadians. And it's so important that, you know, we not look at this as an opportunity to off, slough off costs to another government or play a shell game with one another. We have to go shoulder to wheel to get this done. It's gonna require every province and every territory setting aside differences, setting aside ego, setting aside jurisdiction, and being singularly focused on the health of Canadians. That's how we're gonna deliver the best healthcare system in the world. And I know that that's what Canadians from coast to coast to coast expect us to do. So, uh, you know, I've been very encouraged in the conversations that I have, the provinces aren't looking to play games with this, that they're looking to, uh, to really go shoulder to shoulder to get what, what's needed done to make sure that people who don't, get cover don't have coverage get coverage. Uh, that they uh, that if they're going to make additional investments in their health system, that those be additive, not reductive, not some way to cut corners and, and put money into their pocket, but instead uh, making sure that they expand service. Canadians deserve that. And I think Canadians will be walking very closely. And I can tell you that the conversations that I've had with provinces and territories, I'm firmly believing that we're going to continue in that spirit of mutual uh, cooperation and forward movement. Okay, forward movement, filling in the gaps here. But, you know, I, I also wonder, do, do you run the danger of here uh, of highlighting or perhaps exacerbating regional or societal disparities? Because, you know, it might be equal in theory, but unequal in practice since really there's not many dental clinics in more rural parts of this country. Uh, not everybody gets the same level of dental care. Uh, are you worried that you're perhaps furthering inequality by introducing this program? No. Uh, and I'm not because of, of two very important factors. Uh, one, today we're talking about uh, some 9 million Canadians who don't have access to oral health care and are going to get it. Uh, and that is huge. That's going to advance um, uh, social equity uh, enormously in this country. But we're not done there. We have the Oral Health Access Fund. The Oral Health Access Fund is so important at getting exactly what you're talking about. We know there are rural, remote communities, Indigenous communities, persons with disabilities, 
there are people who have extra barriers to getting to care. And that's why we, with the Oral Health Access Fund, uh, we've set aside dollars to go after those problems. Now, Michael, that doesn't mean that this is going to be perfect out of the gate. It means that we're going to have a lot of continual work to do. But you don't allow perfection uh, to be the enemy of progress. Uh, we need to make sure that we continue to have a, uh, a society that is more just and more fair. And the way that we do that is one step at a time. I call it radical incrementalism, you know, to make things better as fast as you can, as reasonably as you can. And there's no question uh, that this announcement today is going to expand equality, is going to expand uh, equity of outcomes, because that's really what we want to see happen here across our health system. It's not just about e equality of access. Our eventual goal is equality of health outcomes. That's a big goal, but I think it's important to put it out there because that's what we're driving towards. Okay. Well, listen, uh, before you go, I do want to ask about Pharmacare. Uh, of course, the supply and confidence agreement won't fall because of it, but your NDP critic uh, still hopes that a bill might be introduced before this week is done, uh, which leads me to the question, will you be Santa Claus this week? <laughs> well, you know, I, I really have to say the conversations with uh, Don Davies, who's the NDP health critic, have been very positive. Uh, they've been extremely productive in uh, recognizing the circumstances that we're in, the needs and uh, kind of balancing uh, all the different aspects. We're not there yet. Um, it's my hope that, uh, that we can be. We're obviously going to keep working right up to the last minute. Um, but, you know, it's important first and foremost, and Don said this today, and I completely agree, that we get it right. Uh, this isn't about an arbitrary uh, date and time. It's about getting results. And that's what we're focused on. And I can say um, that we're the, the conversations have been very productive. And so uh, I remain hopeful um, that we're going to be able to do something soon. Okay. Uh, Minister Mark Holland, thank you for this. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Michael. The federal government is finally sharing its plan to address abuse in sports. It's not the public inquiry that some have been calling for. Instead, it will be a three-person panel modeled after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that will hear from Canadian athletes and ultimately make recommendations to tackle the problem. We have to talk about racism, misogyny, homophobia and transphobia. We have to talk about the negative, inappropriate and dangerous behaviour that's been normalised and even perpetuated by sport culture that is toxic and makes sport unsafe. Joining us now is the Minister for Sport and Physical Activity, Carla Qualtro. Minister, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Now, you've announced a wide range of initiatives here uh, to address issues of abuse in sport. And really chief among them is this three-person commission modeled and informed by the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What does that say about how deeply you feel sports in Canada has been shaped by abuse? Well, I, I hope it sends a clear signal to Canadians and to the sports system um, that I think we need fundamental change and reform within the Canadian sports system. With the ecosystem, we need culture change. Um, we need to own the fact that we haven't sufficiently protected our kids um, and that there's a, a normalized pattern of behaviour that's completely unacceptable. Normalized pattern of behaviour, how would you define that? How would you describe that? Well, well, think of the things that happen every day in our rinks, on our courts, on our fields, 
in the stands, whether it's, you know, jeering or intimidation or mockery or just the language that is used in sport can be really, really harmful. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's completely acceptable in sport in a way that it would never be acceptable in other aspects of society. Like, could you imagine um, in a school, for example, um, an adult talking to a kid the way that some adults yell at children when they're playing sport? Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, you, you talk about this, the need to uh, embed principles of human rights into the everyday practice of sports. How has that been lacking? How has that led to what we've seen in sports so far? Well, you know, I think historically in sport, we have always spoken about the values of sport, equity, fairness, inclusion, but we've not linked it enough to kind of human rights obligations. So a duty to protect our kids, a duty to provide an environment free from discrimination, um, and not uh, definitely not given um, people who have been harmed uh, recourse, so uh, an avenue to seek justice for having been wronged. I mean, that's what a human rights approach is about. It's really just talking about the system in a way, you know, when you think of all the issues even beyond safe sport, you think of pay equity, you think of trans inclusion in sport, all the issues that are really pressing the system right now, they're all human rights issues. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you say that the, essentially that all sports still struggle uh, with homophobia, with misogyny, transphobia can you build Absolutely. upon that well i mean i i was i'm a product of the sports system um, and i have a disability and there were definitely times in my journey in sport where i didn't feel like i fit into the system or i felt excluded um, and i'm i had success in sport and i know that so many people so many kids in particular um, can't find a place in sport and sport can offer them so much if we could find a place for them and so whether a kid is gay or trans, whether a kid is black or otherwise racialized, um, low income, like there are real barriers um, and real attitudinal barriers to participation in sport that exist. And, you know, I'm the biggest fan of sport. And I think that if we could figure this out and unlock the potential, like the good in sport, um, our country would be so much stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, interestingly, though, and you, you know this, abuse uh, survivors, your predecessor, Minister St. Ange, they were actually calling for a public inquiry on, the a public inquiry yeah. on this issue. That's not what you're pursuing here. Why not? Really good question, and I can tell you I dug really deeply into uh, a number of pre-existing inquiries and commissions and just processes that have unfolded throughout Canadian history. And, you know, in particular, the Dubbin inquiry, which was a, a public inquiry on anti-doping or doping, I guess is a better way of putting it. Um, the Romano Commission, which was a public inquiry on the state of health in our country. Um, and then, of course, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And looking at all those models and understanding where we are on the journey of safe sports, um, I landed on the TRC model because it has that strong element of trauma-informed, victim-centered, safe space. Um, and it, too, started from a place where we know bad things happened um, to vulnerable populations because systems didn't protect them. Um, and that's where we are in sport. Mm -hmm. So not an inquiry. Instead, you have this commission. How do you see this commission coming together? Uh, how quickly do you see this commission essentially getting its work done? Yeah, so um, we will be appointing the commission members in early in the new year, and then that sets 
that sets the ball rolling. So they will immediately get to work over this 18 months um, that we envision them doing public engagements, activities, um, meeting with, looking at um, systemic issues and kind of talking to the system, but also looking outside of sport for answers and solutions and advice and perspectives. Um, sometimes we in sport have tended to get quite insular. Um, and I was really intentional in wording the terms of reference to allow us to draw on the expertise of outside and more independent voices. So during that 18 month, um, they're going to have engagements, uh, which is basically hearings or other activities, uh, in camera, in public, online, um, and then produce a preliminary report and uh, host a national summit and then ultimately uh, produce a final report to the Government of Canada. Okay, uh, Minister Carla Qualtra, I really appreciate the time. Thank you for speaking to us about this. Nice to speak to you. Thank you. To Dubai now, where COP28 is scheduled to end tomorrow, but a contentious debate might delay that. Participants are still trying to cobble together a final agreement, with countries like Canada, the U.S. and the EU supporting a phase-out of fossil fuels, with other countries like Saudi Arabia, China and India opposing it. And as to where the U.N. Secretary General stands, take a listen to Antonio Guterres. A central aspect, in my opinion, of the success of the COP will be for the COP to reach a consensus on the need to phase out fossil fuels in line with a time framework that is in line with the 1.5 degree limit. That doesn't mean that all countries must phase out fossil fuels at the same time. The principle of common differentiated responsibility is applied, but it means that globally the phase-out of fossil fuels need to be compatible with the net zero in 2050 and with the limit of 1.5 degrees in uh, temperature uh, rise. Well, for more, we're now joined by Catherine McKenna, who from 2015 to 2019 served as this country's Minister for the Environment and Climate Change. Ms. McKenna, good to see you again. Thank you for joining us. Good to see you. Listen, I want to begin here uh, with this latest draft that we're hearing about. And of course, this is out of COP28, a proposed deal that does not include language to phase out fossil fuels, but does include a, a range of actions that countries can take to reduce emissions. What's your reaction to that? Uh, well, it's completely in insufficient. I, I was just at COP28. Um, I'm doing work for the UN Secretary General, and he was very clear. Uh, we need to see three things in the text, uh, a phase out of fossil fuels with a tripling of renewable energy, with a doubling of energy efficiency. And now we have like a choose your own adventure of things and not a fossil fuel phase out. We need to be acting on the science. Science of 1.5 degrees is clear. We need to phase out of all fossil fuels. But because we have this 2030 timeline where the science says we need to reduce emissions by half, that has to be linked to real action, which is the tripling uh, of renewable energy and the doubling of energy efficiency, talking about things like CCS and um, technology options and, and other things are just a distraction. Okay, just a distraction, although it has been raised because while there are more than 100 countries that have, have basically said, including Canada, that they want to see this language around phasing out fossil fuel, there is, of course, pushback. And the countries who do push back make the argument it should be focused on emissions rather than uh, an actual phase out, uh, which, again, is the language that you're looking for. Why is an emission target not enough? 
Uh, well, it sounds really great, except the problem um, is the problem. Uh, we have a climate uh, crisis because of the burning of fossil fuels. So just focusing on emissions detracts from, distracts um, from the real issue, which is the burning of fossil fuels. And, and while there's a small, potentially a small role for technology options, not by 2030, because CCS and other options haven't been shown to scale. We actually have the options. Renewable energy, like we actually know what the problem is, fossil fuels, the burning of fossil fuels. We know what the solutions are. Um, you know, most like 80% of the solutions and we need just to get going. And that's why, you know, I think that you've seen a, a lot of annoyance um, by many people, um, including, you know, those uh, the small island states will be underwater um, if we don't get a fossil fuel, uh, fossil fuel phase out and a tripling of renewables um, and don't stand a path to 1.5 degrees. Okay, but how realistic is a phase out here? Because, you know, even wealthy countries like Canada, uh, we're struggling financially right now uh, as a country. How would uh, nations without financial means phase out fossil fuels? Uh, well, first of all, not all countries have fossil fuels. Canada is in a fortunate situation to both have fossil fuels and also have the minerals um, and the solutions we need for the clean transition, as well as access to money. Um, so it's definitely a challenge for for uh, folks that do not have you know money that uh, is available to invest in renewable energy. That's like developing countries. They've made that point, and I think that's a, a very important point. But the reality is, look, we're not talking about phasing out fossil fuels tomorrow. We're saying they need to be phased out by 2050. That's just the science. And, and unfortunately, I see this in Canada where people want to debate the science. They think it's just politics. Like you can get to a compromise and it'll all be very nice. And, you know, well, it, it, we need to do work on the science, which says phase out. Of course, we need to get investments in renewables. Of course, we need to think about workers and jobs. But fossil fuel interests don't, they don't care about that. What do they care about? They care about maximizing their profits. They care about burning fossil fuels forever. Um, they care about making, you know, in the case of Canada, Canadians pay for the pollution by subsidizing solutions. And so, look, the good news about this COP is we're finally having a discussion about the problem. The problem is the burning of coal, oil and gas. Um, but now we have to actually get the real solutions and the solutions based on the science. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying, that you say it's just political. But, you know, uh, there, there are people in this country, the Premier of Alberta among them, who say that this really is ideological. Because while they support getting greener by 2050, as an example, uh, that Alberta puts up there, net zero by 2050, they just want more time to achieve the same goal. Why not? Uh, well, so first of all, I think it's important to be clear when we say when you say net zero, it's not like you can just do things in 2050. Um, I was the head of the UN Secretary General's group on net zero. It set out criteria and standards, including for um, regions, uh, cities and regions. So that would include Alberta. You cannot say you're net zero by 2050 if your emissions continue to go down, uh, go up. Your money continues to go to fossil fuels instead of a renewable energy. You're lobbying against or fighting all climate action, which we're seeing with Alberta. I mean, unfortunately, the Premier of Alberta is the one who's ideological. She has this huge opportunity. Albertans have this huge opportunity, massive investments in renewable energy. 
Um, and, and now they put a pause on renewable energy. I mean, you almost can't make it up. And the reality is I spent a lot of time working abroad. I run my own business. I do a lot uh, of work with folks in Europe and Asia. And they say, what's going on in Canada? Why did you put a pause on investments in renewable energy? Like that includes the companies on which there is the pause. They're investing in Alberta. And so people don't distinguish between Alberta and Canada. So unfortunately, that the, you know, the impact of this wrongheaded decision, um, totally bizarre decision, quite frankly, is to actually send the signal that we don't want the investment. And by the way, we're in a race right now to clean. So the investment will just go to the US, it'll go to the EU, it'll go to Europe. Um, so that's what ideological looks like. I think we just need to be real about the science and what needs to be done. And actually, it was really good to see Minister Gibo um, announce that there's going to be a cap on emissions um, from oil and gas. Um, we need to be doing that. Uh, that's key because that is the largest sector when it comes to pollutions. It's 28% of Canada's emissions. And unlike everyone else who's doing the hard work, their emissions continue to go up while they demand subsidies, while they give all the massive profits they're making, record profits, back to their shareholders, most of whom were outside of Canada, while they're cause of the climate crisis. I mean, we need to do real things. We need to get real. So that's in Canada as well as um, at the COP. So we'll see what happens. We still have a few more days. It's always very dramatic uh, at um, COPs. In 2015, we got the Paris Agreement, which was ambitious. Um, but this time, it's going to be very hard with blockers like Saudi Arabia, with so many fossil fuel interests represented. Okay, a few more days, as you say. Are you getting discouraged at this point then, uh, given how close we are to an end in this draft resolution, not including what uh, the Secretary General was hoping for? Uh, no, most of us are just going to continue pushing hard. I'm part of a group of 1,700 leaders, uh, including business leaders, who have said we need to get a phase out. Uh, it's not over till it's over. And I mean, look, the the secretary, uh, sorry, the president of the COP, um, the uh, Sultan Al Jaber from the UAE, said he's going to, you know, get ambition. So now, where everyone's just waiting to deliver. But I think you're hearing very clear messages that the success or failure of this COP will rely a lot on whether or not there's uh, language relating to a phase out of fossil fuels. But we also need that linked to the solutions, the tripling of renewables, doubling of energy efficiency. Okay, so we'll keep watching, of course, what's happening at COP. But before we're actually done, uh, you, you, we, we've talked a little bit on the side here on the political debate here at home regarding environmental issues. I wonder, from someone who was once a minister of the environment, does there need to be a re-engagement with Canadians on this issue, with affordability being number one, conservatives are clobbering liberals right now, really uh, tying it to, to the carbon regime. Does there need to be re-engagement, considering the passion that you're speaking about, versus perhaps what we're hearing from average Canadians? Um, look, average Canadians, of course, worried about affordability. And when we designed policies, that was the number one thing, well, one of the number one things I considered. So just to be very clear on carbon pricing, it's been it's the most efficient way to reduce emissions and all the money goes back so it's been shown that the affordability issue has nothing to do with carbon pricing where all the money goes back to people and the you know the low income middle income canadians are better off um it's actually the problem is the skyrocketing cost by you know charged by oil and gas companies for heating oil and gas um and other factors completely unrelated to carbon pricing so you know in fact if you were to Tax the tax, you would actually be hurting, you know, middle-income and low-income Canadians. 
Um, but of course, the Conservative Party doesn't want to talk about the fact that money goes back, nor do they want to talk about any solutions. Carbon pricing is literally using the market, so it's actually a small C conservative solution, but they have no solutions. So the planet is burning. We're all paying the cost, economic costs, um, but real costs in human, human life. Um, at the same time, we have solutions and we are very fortunate in Canada because we can attract investment, create more jobs in the clean transition. So. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to talk to Canadians about who are worried about climate change, about the real solutions. I think, you know, a better job needs to be done, um, making sure that Canadians understand that all the money from carbon pricing is going back such that most people are better off. And then we got to get them off heating oil and gas because the problem is the problem. It goes back to oil and gas companies making massive profits while Canadians pay more for heating oil and gas. We have heat pumps. Let's get them all off. Actually, I think we should bring a windfall tax here um, on oil and gas companies. They're making record historic profits that they are giving back to their shareholders outside of Canada, demanding subsidies. Canadians are paying more for heating oil and gas. Um, it's just the pure economics of this, as well as the science, as well as actually taking real action on climate change and winning in the race to a cleaner future. Catherine McKenna, good to speak with you. Thank you for that today. Thanks. And that is our program for this Monday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow, but up next, Esther Bejan avec l'Essentiel.